0: You are listening to Innovative Minds with Melanie Francis, where we talk to some of the top thought leaders, business leaders, and marketers around the globe. Tune in every Thursday and spark your mind. And now, let's get into it. For everyone that doesn't know Chris Walker he is one of the top voices for me on LinkedIn he is talking about demand gen which we will get into if you don't know exactly what that means Um, he is he's one of the only voices I'm seeing that is getting sort of 80,000 plus views on each of his videos he's so laser focused on videos so we'll get into how he's maneuvering that in um, LinkedIn in a minute and all of his other tacks are We'll get into and get really deep into his mind because he is one of the top marketers, top voices, and I'm so excited. He's my favorite person to follow right now. So, Chris, let's get into it. What I really want to know is we don't know anything personally ever about you. Um, I think the closest we got was that you had the female employees on sort of the Women's International Day that you shared. But um, and that was still about Mm -hmm. work. What? Tell me about Chris walker and chris walker's journey to fame i would say on social oh Um, come (laughs) on i think
1: that i'm i'm a normal human (laughs) but Um. tell me
0: tell me because two years ago you kind of shared and i followed you that you know you were just working with two or three companies so tell me the journey um a little bit personally and you know how you've come to where you are
1: Yeah, well, uh, the journey then would start in uh, around 2013 because um, I think like any entrepreneur would say that there's probably somewhere between three and seven years of work that you do that nobody notices before people notice. Um, And so that happened to me starting in 2013. I couldn't communicate it at the time, but I uh, was an entrepreneur I don't just, that's how I felt. And so I was very attracted to that. I like I enjoyed at 23 years old, spending my Saturday, trying to figure out how to build a website and figure out how to sell stuff on Amazon and Shopify. And so I did that. I started one company, which is what I call it scraping my knees, trying to figure out how to manage supply chain in, in China, figuring out how to run Amazon search ads, figuring out how to generate revenue on your own while also working in a full-time capacity for a manufacturing company. I did a similar one again um, around 2015, 16. Another e-commerce company. This one I started to figure out a little bit better. Creative was better. Um, brand on Instagram was stronger. Sh- stole more direct to consumer through Shopify than through Amazon. So I could tell that some of the dynamics I had figured out on from marketing perspective, um, and that was something that really uh, it really drove me. Um, I felt like I had something uh, something special inside of me that I hadn't unlocked before. And so I, um, I don't share that much about my personal life because I'm, I just don't think that it's that necessary. Mm -hmm. Um, and secondarily, I'm like heavily driven to, um, because of the unlocks that I've seen in my own life and in my own career, I'm heavily driven to share those with other people because everyone can unlock these things. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just about having the, the discipline, seeing the right opportunities, getting the right information, and then and then acting on it. So I um I spend a lot of time doing that. And then if you want to know a couple of personal things, I'll share a couple of personal things. I went on an endeavor last year um, to uh, attempt to run ultra marathons. It was something that I thought was interesting, um, and I had gotten up to running uh, twenty. 25 miles at a time. Some weekends I would do like a 20 and then a 20 again, Saturday, 20, Sunday, 20. It's a, a training program to work up to like a 50 mile race. Um, and, uh, something that just, it, I think it's exemplary of how I look at things, which is like, I set a target and then I try and go out and get it. Um, this one, I ended up dealing with a little bit of a knee injury. And so I, uh, I do not run as long anymore. I stick to about seven miles, but I do really enjoy running as a um, as a hobby as well.
0: I've always been curious and I've always wanted to ask you why that is so. Is that because you think that personal should be sort of, it's not relevant into the marketing that you're doing?
1: Mm, so uh, for, as a step one, as a business owner, your uh, your personal life and your real life become one and the same. Um, and so I've found like more of an integration between my work life and my personal life that I'm really proud of right now. And I think is working really well. Um, and when it comes to like sharing the personal side, like <clears throat> I'm starting to get more into sharing the, the interesting aspects and the challenging things that have gone through growing a company to more than hundred people in less than three years. And so there's, there's things that I'm looking forward to sharing more as I experience more, um, in the world. And so that's some things that I'm I'm looking forward to sharing. But when it comes to what I'm what I'm trying to do on LinkedIn, the core thing about why people it's like you got to have content that matches what the audience wants, um, and what I distribute is information that people can use to get better, whether it's in marketing or business or in their career, um, and that's sort of like the place where I've decided to sort to stay. And I think drawing a line in where you set the content, like, and I don't have children, right? I got a really cute dog that would make for a great photo on LinkedIn, but haven't shared that Mm -hmm. yet. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, like some of that stuff I think is like nice, but when it comes Mm -hmm. to, I think why I've been able to be successful in content, it's because I put the audience first. And I think those are the the things that I share, I think are the most valuable things that I have to share.
0: And. You putting your audience first, as I sort of see you do it, you show up every week three times, uh, I think, a week. You're doing podcasts and learn from your team by just trying to engage you. Somewhere between
1: three and five, yeah.
0: Wow. So you show up every single week to learn about your audience so you can actually serve valuable content.
1: Is yeah, that right? and, to lear- and to learn and to learn more about yeah to learn more about the audience but also to learn more about my perspective right so sharing the perspective in this type of format allows me to clarify the messaging understand where i'm talking about things that are working very well allows me to test new ideas allows me to try a different type of format that may work better um, and so i treat it like if you're a painter right like not everything that you paint is going to be what people love but you got to try you got to try new things to figure out what you're going to do so um, I use it as a, uh, a creative expression.
0: Wow. Okay. So you treat this five hours as a learning experience for you to learn and have just have a moment to think, this is your moment to think and share thought leadership.
1: I've found that the, at this point, because of the, the, uh, consistency in which I talk about it, that a live format and often with audiences, is the way that I break, get bro- breakthrough ideas to happen. Um, so that's sort of the way that I've been, that's, that's part of the reason. Part of the reason is because of that is why I show up. And another big part of the reason about why I show up is because I'm here to show people what is required in order to make a podcast successful. Right. And so it's not only about me learning, but it's also about other people seeing that want to start a podcast or have a a goal of building a company about what are the things that you need to do in order for that to be successful and work and in content, whether it's podcasts, LinkedIn, anything like consistency really matters. Um, and I take it, uh, I take it very seriously.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I just want to know how you manage to manage your time between Mm -hmm. you, your podcast, you running a business with you know, you're just there, hundred plus people, you've got clients on that. Then I see you being active on LinkedIn commenting. And I think that's your voice, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you your, yourself commenting out or do you have a process in place where someone comes in and collects where you need to respond?
1: If uh, anyone's received a message or a comment from me, then it's came from my fingers. Um, so there's nobody out there looking about like, oh, you should comment on these things and then passing it to me. It's like, it's just, I built a workflow and I think that it's like other CEOs might not think that doing those things is valuable for their time. I do, right? And then it's the question of who who's right, right? Maybe their perspective mm-hmm. was right in 2012, but mm-hmm. being present in these communities, understanding what your customers are saying, understanding how your customers give feedback to your point of view and perspective, I think, is a key um, a key objective of a CEO today. And so I think people are just a little bit confused as to how the world has shifted and how that shifts where you should focus.
0: Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit more about that. So I have a lot of CEOs where we manage their personal brand and we're helping them put out content because they're busy. They don't have the time. And I look at you and I just see you going so hard in the content game, but the CEOs often struggle to balance that time. And they don't, to me, they say, I don't have time to comment on all the comments I get on my post now," And they want me to provide that as a service, but I can't match that voice as authentically. And if I did provide that service to them, it would just not be authentic. And it would be a copywriter writing and it's just not that deep. And I refuse to go that deep into someone's mind to comment out so what do you what kind of advice what would you say to a ceo that says i don't have time to reply to you know the hundreds of comments because you made me go viral
1: i mean the first thing is whenever you say you don't have time what it means is that this isn't a priority so let's just make sure that we're using the right language here um so what you're actually saying is that you you don't prioritize this part of it Um, And it's crazy when you think about it, because if if the post went viral and it was 100 people that legitimately could be or are your customers, wouldn't you be thrilled to go and have a conversation with each of them, right? And so it's another bit of a perspective shift. Like I find CEOs would be pumped to go and have a dinner and spend four hours at a dinner with five people. Because that's what you did in the old world, right, yes. to, to to network and to build relationships and things like that. But when given the opportunity to touch 20 times more people in way less time virtually, they think that it's not as good, right? And I think there's a, a shift here because I get way more done and way more effective using digital, which then opens up the doors in real life, right? And so most people only think about things in real life, but I have... I'm on podcasts like this one. I have dinners with with people. I get to meet and have meetings with people that would have never wanted to meet with me had I not been first engaging and producing content for the internet first. And so, shifting the mindset about what um, about is is it a priority or not? How much am I going to prioritize it? And then what? How do I f- reframe this in a way so that my brain sees it as valuable? Um, Those are some of the things that I would say.
0: Well, what's your, you said you've got a workflow. So if you were to share the workflow with the CEOs, what's your workflow? How does does Chris Walker do it?
1: So every morning between 7.30 and 8.30 a.m. Eastern, I have a block of time where I can write out the copy. I can choose what I'm gonna post and I can write out the copy of the post. The copy is what takes the most time. Creating the videos is actually all the, I log in, all the videos are already done. Um, mm-hmm. and then I have an hour of time to figure out what the message I want to say, how I'm going to write the copy, post it, and then engage for at least the first five minutes. So that's like my workflow and sh- like mm-hmm. cramming it into, and in, I think it's actually 45 minutes now and getting it into 45 minutes is just like, I, there's a law about like, you have a certain amount of time to do a certain thing. You'll get it done within that amount of time. Um, so mm-hmm. that's a thing Monday through Friday that's consistent and then inside of on the Tuesdays and Thursdays, there are blocks where I speak at live events, where I'm on podcasts and things like that. Another big way for CEOs or, or executives to scale content creation. Like I don't, uh, I, am not that often on recordings without audiences anymore. Um, which then says like, okay, I'm going to speak at a live event to a hundred people and I'm going to get a podcast out of it. And it's Mm going to create nine LinkedIn videos. And you can start to, to figure out how to make it ROI positive. Um, through, through efficiency. Yeah. And then the commenting part of it, like is, is like the posting is the beginning, but where you build relationships, where you go deeper, where you get people to engage and have that, the sense that you had toward me since the beginning is through, through engagement, whether that's in a, like a live event format has been really helpful for me. I answer questions and comments and things with people all the time that builds depth of relationships inside of the comments is very helpful commenting on other people's posts, answering the, the direct messages that people send me that are thoughtful. Um, so there's a lot of different angles but if you if you want to play the game, I think you got to play the whole game you know what I mean I think yeah. people are only yeah well you're you're
0: saying that yes okay you, you've also got time blocked out for commenting. I'll not draw.
1: I don't block the time. For, I don't. Book. Yeah, so I post you just do it. and then like yeah, I got five minutes to watch early traction, get a sense of how the post is going to perform, and then answer the first couple comments. And then it's built in. I got two or three minutes between a meeting here, a sure. couple of minutes meeting Go here, on. and I work into the comments. And I'd be lying to say if I get to every single one of them all the time. I do the best that I can. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: You're, you're obviously passionate about it, and you want to you want to be involved in the conversation. For you, it's like social being social and you're just interacting back into the platform
1: that's, and it's just that's like what I'm if you hearing. if you uh as a ceo want your business to grow like this is this is one way to mm-hmm. definitely do it you know what i mean and it takes a it takes some effort and some things but when you stack it up against other things that a ceo spends their time on gosh there's a Especially for companies less than a thousand employees, like there's a lot of a lot of opportunity and a lot of room for three hours a week, four hours a week here to to make a dramatic impact on the growth of the company. Um, so
0: absolutely, tell me tell me about the other channels. I've seen you so you've got your podcast. I've seen you contribute heavily into LinkedIn, and I see you playing into. You post all your videos on YouTube, although that doesn't seem to be a main player or a channel for you there. Mm-hmm. And I know that you've gotten into you're playing with TikTok or your employees are definitely testing it out. So talk to me through, you know, where is YouTube and TikTok sitting for you? Is that something that you, you want to now expand into that now you've owned a channel and you're happy with performance? And I know owning a channel is still... It's still a challenge because you'll need to continue. If you own it today, you might not own it tomorrow if you don't stay laser focused. Mm-hmm. So, how, how are you spreading that? You know, um, yourself out into those channels, exploring them, and still, you know, staying on top of the game here on LinkedIn.
1: Yeah, I use a, a five-step framework to work through build, like testing, building, and scaling channels, and then it's important to know where does each channel sit in your mix. So, it would go uh, experiment. Launch experiments, got to figure out what is like just testing, right? Seeing what we get. Number two is positive signals. So I'm going to get some type of qualitative signal, people commenting, people sending me messages saying they like it, people inviting me on to to speak at their company, whatever. So doing tests, getting positive signals. Then if I keep doing that, do I get repeatability? Step three is repeatability. If I keep doing the same activity, do I get the same outcome out? Step four is operationalize. So once it's repeatable... Can I add resources, automation, process, things to make it work better and be able to do it more consistently and scalably? And step five would be to actually go out and scale it, which would be more volume, more posts, more whatever, more money if it's in a paid channel or something like that. So uh, podcast is in step five. LinkedIn is in step five, right? So they're already running, they're mature, we have a good process down, more volume is not the answer. What we're focused on now is production quality, quality of the message, creating more content so we can be more selective on what videos we actually post there. That's what we're using as like the the level of innovation there right now. And then TikTok and YouTube are in like step one or two. and it's okay for those to be there, and like, and knowing that, like, in 2019, LinkedIn was in step one and two for six months, mm-hmm. um, and so people just uh, they see the success, but they don't see the same thing. And so I've seen the pattern before. TikTok, I'm already getting interesting signals. Um, follower count is growing quickly. Content is getting t- tens of thousands of views. So I'm like. I'm happy with the performance at that level. YouTube, we just started taking seriously about three or four months ago. Before, it was just like a content repository, right? You mentioned that. Just take videos and post them there. Now we've hired an editor to really start to figure out how is this content going to work in the format, shortening the length, being more uh, thoughtful with how the editing happens. Um, And so taking a more thoughtful approach to both my personal TikTok and our company's YouTube strategy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So... TikTok is really interesting. Um, a lot of the companies, particularly in the USA, that we've come um, in contact with are really interested in now investing in TikTok. And I want to talk to you about TikTok because these companies haven't owned a channel like LinkedIn yet where their audience lives and they're already trying to go right into TikTok. And I guess for you, I can understand that. I respect that you've owned a channel and now you're just trying to refine and repurpose some of that content in but America in particular is very excited about TikTok and the SaaS companies we're dealing with are sort of going in and saying, Hey, can we do TikTok already? And I, I think that, you know, why are they in TikTok? And I think the users are not yet identifiable and there. And it's fine if they wanted to do it as experiments and they're having a long term mm-hmm. goal, which I can see you are. What's what are you saying to companies that are coming to you saying, you know, I think that we should lead with tiktok um and talk to me about you know thoughts about data and everything like that over there
1: yeah as well it's kind of it's kind of like trying to get to the stop, top of the staircase before you took the first step um and so it's i don't know people have probably seen the meme that goes around that's like like company they nobody liked our content on instagram facebook youtube twitter reddit blah blah, blah but they're going to love us on tiktok right um and that's really what uh the message that I'm, I try to get across to companies that want to do this is like, if you don't have a repeatable process to create information with a point of view that people already resonate with, that's working, then just taking your B2B marketing team and trying to drop them into TikTok is probably not going to be effective. The re- and the reason that I'm working in TikTok is because the highest potential channels are already scaled. Right. And so if you're a B2B company and you don't produce three podcasts a week, if you don't have weekly live events with subject matter expertise, if you don't post on LinkedIn every day, you should figure out how to do that first and then fig- and then work on TikTok later. From a personal standpoint, if one of the employees wants to go and figure that stuff out, like be my guest, test and learn, like use your time how you want. But as a business, I think it's borderline irresponsible to focus your effort and energy there. If you don't have a a LinkedIn strategy, that's already working.
0: And there you go. That's why I love Chris Walker so much. (laughs) (laughs) You told me that you're going to extract nine videos, potentially from every podcast you get, and then you get to see the snips up in there and then you will go and choose. So you're saying that you, by the time in one week, you would have potentially 50 to 60 videos, um, in front of you that you are going to now filter through is that so is it basically every week you're calling that type of content down and then choosing the best three or four to post um or do you you know just kind of how does your content work because something that you said this week in a month's time if you've collected that type of content level how do you get down and refine and distribute
1: Yeah, so the amount of videos, we have four full-time video editors that work here now. Um, We'll probably create somewhere between 30 and 60 videos from the content that's produced every week. And then LinkedIn becomes sort of like the highlight reel. Um, But honestly, like, LinkedIn has been working great, but over time, the podcast has become a much more powerful channel for us. Um, Because you get the depth and the, like the list, someone listening to your podcast for two hours, like the amount of depth that creates versus someone browsing your LinkedIn content, they both matter. And they're almost, they almost, you need both at the same time. It's kind of like a one, two tandem. Um, But the podcast is what people report when they are coming in and saying, hey, I want to work with you. The podcast is what's driving a majority of that. And so the podcast has actually become more of a primary and then the, the spinoff of that is all the video content that went, then gets put in other channels, which ideally is a feeder to the podcast.
0: Yes, of course. That's yeah. also attracting back into the podcast. Mm-hmm. But you are you very selective then about how, because you're one thing is you've got so much content yeah. in front of you. And that's another, now you've got all these pieces of content that you're now gonna have to refine and choose, okay, I'm going to only take X and there's content that becomes old. But you might not you mm-hmm. might think that's not what i feel anymore because you're evolving as a person within. um that's that's a problem that we all have right that sometimes that content is ah, uh, not really so how much of it are you just culling or are you putting it in the back stash going okay i might use this is that your thought or do you, mm. you don't use all of it it sounds it's, like
1: it's like it's part of the strategy to create enough of a volume that the stuff that you post you're pumped to post right? Yes. And it's like not yeah. ev- not every single video is going to hit that way. And so if it doesn't, then I just like put it in a folder that says not going to post and I move on. Um, and so that's the, it's, it's part of the strategy to do that because there was a point where we didn't have any LinkedIn videos. And then I was like, I don't have any videos. I'm going to have to write a text post instead. And so maybe I, I like, perhaps we've overcorrected here, but honestly, I feel like the, um, the and then if we don't if I don't post on my personal page like some someone on our team could take that and post it on the company page LinkedIn could take it and post it on the company page TikTok so there's ways that we've been able to like okay it doesn't get through here but does it get posted somewhere else um that's how we do it and the incremental cost of like d- editing some videos that you don't use is like it's irrelevant
0: yeah absolutely um that's I want to talk to you about something totally different about your personal life and we covered it a little bit before but we missed that because we had to reshoot this again a yeah. <laughs> technical glitch so here we are um i just want to know about chris walker personally because you don't share a lot about your personal self and don't know why that is so but my view is it kind of warms people to you to want to work for you and and also to get to know you a little bit, but I don't see a lot about Chris Walker. So what is, you know, something personally about Chris Walker that we all don't know um, or something that, you know, what is your weak hands look like is what I'm curious about. And do you ever rest? Because you're, you seem to me like you're on all the time. You're shooting podcasts, you're commenting, you're pretty much in business mode almost. So I'd love to know a bit more about personally.
1: I would say I'm incredibly driven and didn't come from much. Um, and when you don't come from much and you start to get things working, you harness it and you you take you use it differently than someone that came from something. I think, and so um, that has been something that I've had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder for more than a decade coming out of college a lot of big brand companies amazon places like that wouldn't hire me uh you know after that worked at some companies like didn't get a lot of what i would consider looks at like a high profile software company because i didn't have a software background right and all of these little little things where you're just not really given the chance that you feel like you deserve um, puts you in a place where you don't like, it's so crazy for me because instead of waiting for someone else to give me the chance, I created my own chance. You know what I mean? And now that I've, I've been able to figure that out, which has, which has just, uh, has been so empowering for me over the past three years. And the, um, the, explosion of my potential as a professional, as a leader, as those things of when I got out of playing the way the game that everybody else is playing and I started to play my own game. um, It just uh, it has been a, a, a real explosion of my potential thing, something that I may have not realized had I not gone my own path. And so I feel a level of accountability and to, to share what I know with other people because I know how many other people are around and haven't gotten their chance and ha- never get the job that people are, that they want to get because some fucking hiring manager isn't going to give them the look because they don- or their res- resume goes through an automated system and they never even get a look at it. And all of the other p- times where people that are very talented, or whether they work in a company right now and they get suppressed by leadership, which happened, happened to me before early in my career, and couldn't live the potential or the innovation or things like that that were inside of me there, I feel a level of accountability to share my story so that people can understand that they have the power to do these things too. The world is different now. Um, and... and I think peop, a lot of people, even me, um, four, three to four years ago, didn't understand the power and the optionality that we really have in the world today. So that's uh, that's something that's been that drives me a lot, which keeps me in uh, quote unquote business mode. But it, to me, it's just life mode. My business and personal life are now one and the same. I um, I love what I'm doing. I think about it as a, like I mentioned before, it's an expression of creativity. I think about it like art. I think about it like a, a architect that's trying to build, design a beautiful building. It's like what I'm doing. So on a Saturday when I don't have plans, I love no space to sit down at this desk and plan out what the company's going to look like when we have a thousand people that work here. Like Amazing. It's, So that those are Amazing. Th- like, those are exercises that I like to do. Other people want to, Go snowboarding on Saturday. I love to snowboard, but I don't go every weekend, right? Other people want to go. Other people have children. Like I don't have kids. Um, so there are, and there's been other sort of like hobbies that I've had earlier in my life, or even acti- maybe activities that you do is a better way to say it than hobbies um, that I've decided to deprioritize in my life, which then creates the ability for focus and things like that now. Um, And the way that I look at it, and I think this will resonate with some people, but maybe not everybody, is that if you were like, if you spent your whole life trying to be a star basketball player, and then you were like, you grew up, you went through all of it, you played all the leagues, you got into college, things were going well, you got your shot, and then you actually capitalized on the shot. And then people are starting to be like, "Wow, this person's really good. They're good at their game." Are you going to take your foot off the gas? No, you're going to press, stomp down harder. You know what I mean? You're going to go harder because you you've been working so hard for your shot, and now you have it. And now you're not just going to sit back. You're going to try and be the best. And that's the that's the mode that I'm in right now.
0: Yeah, I can see that. I can I can see that, and I feel that energy. Go back. Let's go back and just talk about when you were. Trying to do all those practices as a marketing as a, as a marketing manager cmo and we've got all these cmos that are also struggling they come in into a role they are given an x budget and they're asked to perform and if they don't do they don't show sure roi this is the key word and it's the most word that you talk about a lot it's a hated word amongst cmos internally but they feel this immense amount of pressure. So straight away, let's demonstrate ROI. And, you know, when am I going to hit X million? You know, I've given you X. And you talk about this a lot. What what time period, you know, should CMOs being given um, in your view since coming into a new role? Maybe the company's, say it's a SaaS company, it's in growth phase. Um, but it's a brand new CMO coming in. They've never usually had a total investment in marketing. What time frame would you give them to really prove out their strategy?
1: So the first thing that I would say is you got, as a CMO in this role, you got to make sure you're playing the right game. Um, and so <clears throat> there's a, a lot of CMOs get pushed to play the MQL game, which was a great game to play 10 years mm-hmm. ago. Um, mm-hmm. And, but to keep your job and to exceed the tenure that an average CMO has, which I think is like 24 months or something like that. Don't quote me on that, but it's somewhere Mm -hmm. around there to exceed that level of things, you need to produce business outcomes, not MQLs. And so the first step that I help people on this one is you got to change the goal. Um, and not only change the goal in your mind, but you need to have your executive team agree that these are the goals that we play by now. And here, back in history, here's how we, I know that we were getting a thousand MQLs a week, but when you change the goal and you go back in history, here's how we were doing, which is probably not very good, right? And so when you change the goal from MQLs to pipeline that our sales team wins at 25%, and you start looking at, okay, what, how do we progress over the past four fiscal quarters since the day that I joined? Most likely it will be like f- probably flat. Um, -hmm. I see flat or I just see unstable Mm -hmm. up and down, no clear trends, very rare that you see an up into the right chart on pipeline. Um, and so when you think about the time to results, the things that you need to be thinking about as a, as a leader is how do I set the right expectations at the right milestones with the right metrics? So the first milestone that I'm going to try and drive as a CMO is in my first full fiscal quarter working at the business. I'm going to try, try and drive an increase in qualified meetings that come from our website. I'm going to try and fix anything else inside of the sales process or inside of the marketing process to capture demand better. And I think that, that the easiest, not the easiest, but the most clear metric to move in that time frame in an enterprise SaaS organization is how many qualified meetings happen with your sales team. Um, Then the next six to nine months, what you should be looking at is how much pipeline are we creating that our sales team wins at greater than 25%. The goal there is to have a nice conversation with the sales leader, your counterpart, and potentially the CEO, depending on how the organization is structured and how it runs. And say, look, before we used to measure our marketing team on MQLs. If you look back in history, that didn't serve us very well. You head of sales weren't looking at it. We were wasting so much time with all of our salespeople doing it. I don't want to do that anymore. What I want to do as a marketing leader is I want to align my objectives directly to our sales outcomes so that I'm viewed as a revenue contributor and a business driver. And so what I'm going to do is I'm not going to pump up MQL metrics anymore. I'm going to you're going to score my performance on how many how much pipeline I put in here that your sales team's going to win at greater than 25% and I'm going to defend my marketing budget against the revenue that gets created from that. So if you give me $4 million and you say, we're going to try and get a CAC payback, marketing CAC payback of 12 months, which is pretty standard, then we're going to drive $4 million of future revenue against that spend. So you have that conversation, you adjust the goal, you align it with sales outcomes, and then you look back historically, and then your job from there is to grow. The, the, the baseline numbers are probably pretty flat, and you should be trying to grow at greater than 25% a quarter qualified number of qualified meetings number of uh, qualified pipeline generated through the website 25% a quarter for a growth stage company if you're not a seed or pre-revenue company if you're like an established business greater than 25% growth is going to give you greater than a, a per quarter is going to give you greater than a 100% year over year growth which is going to achieve most growth targets for companies and so you can adjust the target if you need to from 25 to 33% or 18% depending on where you are in your growth maturity and what's expected of you. But looking at that as a, as the first indicator, if you have a sales team and you got sales cycle lengths at greater than 90 days, the, the odds of you having a meaningful, big impact on revenue in the first nine to 12 months is pretty low. Maybe the, maybe the fourth fiscal quarter of you being in there, but it's going to take you to take you time to set up the system. It's going to take you time to build pipe. It's going to take you time for those that those sales cycles to actually mature and for a level for all of the inertia to actually come out and be like a meaningful, meaningful impact on revenue. So I like centering it on qualified pipe for the first six to nine months. And then we're going to, and then we're going to transfer it to, once the system's moving to qualified pipe and revenue growth.
0: Okay, So with, that when you're saying, okay, supply the sales team with qualified leads. Now I want to talk about gated and ungated content because you talk a lot about ungating the content and here is CMOs that are pushing ungated content and they're like, I don't have the leads. I didn't capture it. Right. And that's might be because their website didn't actually communicate what they do or didn't engage in a way that that person was led to move into a funnel there. Mm -hmm. So they're sitting there going, I need to gate that content on the paid ads, spending X amount for that lead in order to serve that purpose that you've said, here I am feeding my sales team. So Mm -hmm. how do they manage, you know, if if their commitment is absolutely, okay, I'm going to go give SQLs back into my sales team. That is my only driver. And then there's all this, talk about gated and ungated content and you know, don't do a gated content. How, how do you expect them to sort of um, achieve what you're saying? What is your thought and what is your recommendation to them?
1: I'm gonna take this question from two angles. We're gonna take it from a business data angle and then we'll take it from a logic by like what do buyers want angle. We'll hit it from both sides. On the business side, companies already do this, right? And when you do stuff like this, the funny thing is it's perfectly tracked. So, and it's not only perfectly tracked at the lead, but you should be able to trace that through to opportunities and to revenue. And if you looked at that by program and by channel, what you would see, like what I always see is you get a lot of leads and not a lot of them close. The diff and the reason is because not all MQLs are created equal. The level of buying intent that a buyer has has a dramatic impact on whether they convert into a meeting with your sales team and even more so whether they convert into revenue. And so you can run the analysis. I've done it enough times so that I can spit out to you what the data will typically show. You run paid social, gated content on LinkedIn ads, and you then try and do some type of sales outreach or you do some level of market automation and then MQL score and then the same level of sales outreach. And you do that um, out of all the people that fill out the form On LinkedIn, one in a thousand will become your customer within the next 12 months. So that's not real great. Um, especially if you have a sales action going behind it and depending on how much you're spending per quote unquote lead, which isn't really a lead, it's an email address. So how Mm -hmm. much you pay, you pay $150 per email address you win one out of a thousand. You can do the math on what's costing you just an advertising expense to get that customer, not your SDR time, not your marketing team time not your actual sales resources, sales commissions, things like that. It is a terribly expensive proposition and impossible to scale. So you can look at the business data that way, and then you can sit, you can make a black and white decision. Are these programs working for us? Are they serving our business? Is this the best way for us to spend our money and our time and our sales team's time to grow the company or not? The answer that I found after analyzing more than 20 companies that do this tactic deep inside of their Salesforce instance is the answer is no. Um, and I've not, I've yet to find one where it's a, like a meaningfully highly, uh, a meaningfully impact on the business through this, through this tactic in present day. So that's one, but it's all built around changing from looking at leads and how much the lead cost to looking at how much revenue you got where it came from, and how much it cost you to get the revenue. So that's the business side of it. That's an an analysis that we call split the funnel. It's very simple to do if you use HubSpot or Salesforce or any of that. You can export it into a spreadsheet, run it by lead source, figure out what the data is. The good thing that I know is that any company that does this is obsessed with attribution and has everything that's tracked. So all the data is in there. I know that it's there. You can do the analysis if you want to. On the logic side... I'd like to hit this in a couple ang- angles. So first off, no, no, uh, no buyers are interested in exchanging their information for a gated PDF when the information is now a commodity. In 2014, there wasn't a lot of information, especially niche B two B information, on the internet, and so and this whole like tactic was sort of immature. So people would be willing to give their information for at that point, the PDFs maybe had actually good information. What's happened over time is that the availability of information where it's coming from and how much there is on the internet about niche topics like cybersecurity or fp or demand gen or anything else, all this information is available on the internet, ungated for free, not, com- not coming from vendors, but potentially coming from other people that maybe people trust more. So if you adopted that mindset and you, and you realize that people no longer read PDFs on their, on their phone or their desktop computer like it's 2014, what they do is they consume information inside of social networks, communities, and other places like that, that you need to adapt your content strategy, the format that it's being created in, how it's being distributed for how the world actually works today and how your buyers consume information. And so the number one thing, it's not like number one on, on this piece is that you need to decide that you're not optimizing for leads. If you're optimized and, or you could change the definition of what a lead means and and disqualify people that do this out of your lead definition so that it would deprioritize this tactic. If you're going to, if you prioritize how many email addresses can I get for, for someone to fill out a form This is the best way to hit the goal. You got to change the goal to something that matters to the business. Once you change the goal, then it's about how does this change my overall marketing strategy by not having to do this, right? So instead of putting content behind a wall on my website that most people will never find, and if they do find it, probably less than 30% are going to fill out the form and then some percentage of that are actually going to thoughtfully consume the pdf so by the time you work through that whole funnel thousands of people could have seen your information consumed it learn more and like 10 a handful did but if you took the exact same information it changes what what format you created in so maybe you have this pdf but you're going to convert it into animated videos or you're going to convert it into a talk show where you talk through the statistics and data that you've collected in video it changes, one, the format, and then because you don't need to gate it, you can change the distribution to availability free inside of social networks because that's where people consume information. So you can take your talk show where you talked about the statistics that used to be in an ebook that nobody reads, and now it's in a talk show that people want to see, and you put that on, on LinkedIn three times a week. And so it changes a lot of the exec- the, the base information could be almost exactly the same. But how you are packaging it, communicating, distributing, and measuring it all needs to change.
0: Okay. So say that they do that and they post it into the social channels or they create a podcast. The data available on LinkedIn is horrendous for the companies. And from if they said, okay, I want to commit and show up every day for newsletters, there you are. You've got your subscriber list that you've built. The data has to be scraped now using external tools. LinkedIn's not offering a download but downloadable, you know, um Excel, which can go mm-hmm. to attribution that oh, I'll be subscribed, seven months ago and now is doing a demo. We don't have followership easily, you know, able to go through and download that, that who's actually followed and let me just download that piece of information. So mm-hmm. I really want to, you know, in our final time together, talk about data because you talked about attribution and that was amazing you you said every company needs to have good attribution tactics how do you have good attribution tactics when you've got a social channel that's not providing that data
1: the whole time you're asking the question the thing that i was thinking about is like what it's it sounds like those people are like they have like a horse-drawn carriage and the wheel's broken and they're trying to figure out how to like fix their wheel right Mm -hmm. and they're like But there's cars and airplanes right over here we should try and do something it's like there's been a huge shift in how the world is working and you can't go back and play by the old rules right that's the first thing that i would say when it comes to the data Mm -hmm. the the privacy policies of these platforms and all over the internet deprecation of third-party cookies privacy policies on linkedin some of the things that have happened with facebook and instagram recently Broadly, across the, the globe, in terms of the internet, we are moving into a more privacy-centric place than before we were here. So the expectation should be that these things continue to get harder and harder to track, not easier. Technology vendors don't want you to think that way, but that's the way that it's actually going. Because the places that own the attention of people, the, the places that are really in charge, are social networks, communities, and places like that, which all have strict, very detailed privacy policies on how they use and and give away and distribute the data that gets created on the platform. And, or if you had a phone call or things like that, could you imagine like a Verizon tapping your phone or looking into your text messages? Like that's basically what they're asking you to do on LinkedIn to scrape that data. And so when I say it like that, people like start to have an, a different understanding, but this is just like, it's a new game to play by. We need to measure it differently. And so the way that I have been measuring it, which probably most people listening to this podcast are gonna think this idea is stupid. I'm gonna keep doing what I'm doing, but I'd encourage you to just give it a little bit of a thought um, because at three years ago, my company didn't exist Um, and now, We have a top 10 podcast in the US. We have more than 100 people that work here. And the reason is because we have a great product. We have a great uh, talent talent experience, talent management process, and we know how to do marketing and measure marketing. Those are the only three things, those are the three things that we know how to do really well among a lot of other things. And so, and the measuring of marketing is the massive unlock that drives this trajectory of growth for my company. Because what I care about is what customers say and what the market says qualitatively, not what software says. Software can help. It's nice. But if you're telling me that as a business that you're not spending time talking to your customers, understanding where they are learning about things, understanding how they're thinking about your content, getting feedback on your message, understanding where, like, what questions or objections they have on that, doing interviews on, on who they listen to, where they listen to it and why, like if you're not collecting that information and you're not collecting on the way in, how did you hear about our business? We're like across the board, just qualitative customer data collection companies spend almost no time and no money doing any of that. And they just default to software. And this is the gap, right? So this is like going and fixing the wagon wheel while there's a plane sitting over there and you're trying to get across the world. Like, the insights that I that you get in qualitative data send you way faster way better decisions way more customer centric and it makes way more sense so when everyone's out there I'm like oh like LinkedIn definitely uh, LinkedIn definitely works but I can't measure any of the success of it uh, all we do is we ask when people are on a first call with us, where did you hear about us? And then we document that and 27% of our net new ARR this year came from people that said, I heard about you from LinkedIn, right. More likely I've been consuming your content on LinkedIn for two and a half years, and now I just got a new CMO job and I'm ready to work with you. So it's even deeper You're levels right. of detail. Um, another 46% come from the podcast. And so, and like when customers tell us that it's hard to say that they're wrong and attribution software is right. Um, because attribution software says all the people found us through organic search or direct traffic. And it's like, I don't know how I'm the only person really challenging this mantra here, but like, how in the world can you prioritize what a software tool says to you versus what your customer says to you directly is just beyond me.
0: Got it. Okay. Well, we're almost at the end of our time together and I guess I did have one of your thoughts about what are your predictions about what comes after LinkedIn and TikTok? Where do you think that the market will play into?
1: So short answer is I don't know. Those things will emerge and my job is to recognize them and then capitalize on them. But here's what I'll say. I see a um, there's an element of communities that are happening a lot, right? There's become, like a lot of communities are happening. I think there's going to be a, quite a bit of quite a bit of noise, um, created through them. I used to be in a couple, they scale membership, it becomes very difficult to manage. And then it's like, you just move out. Um, but I see a opportunity for niche platforms to, to disrupt LinkedIn, um, and so I think I, it's, and I've been talking about this for three years, bravado is kind of doing it on the sales side a little bit. I see that as an interesting thing. Um, but when it comes down to it, the, the, as a user of LinkedIn and one that's become very successful through it, right? So I'm not throwing stones at LinkedIn, shout out to LinkedIn. I'm trying to help you when I say this is that you're... The users of your platform are annoyed with the things that you allow to happen with it, how you prioritize in the algorithm, poor posts, which are driven through being able to generate more ad revenue, how you sell the B2B side with sales navigator and things like that, which creates spam where people get spam in their inbox through conversation ads or sales navigator and all the people that complain about that. And so because there's, it's a, it's one of the only social networks that have almost two revenue streams, and it, it has to balance them both, and it's it just has shown that it continues to choose uh, revenue over user experience, and I think that will play out over time. And I think that long-term marketing might be looking for its own social network, that B2B marketing even, or it could be even more niche, social network to go on that's free from a lot of the algorithmic things, maybe not having ads, right? There's like interesting things. I think that finance or cybersecurity or other ones, I think there's a real opportunity in a B2B world to create niche social networks around functions that play that disrupt communities and disrupt LinkedIn.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I loved your recent thought about how you analyze the video views. Over in LinkedIn, and why we don't get the video views. I actually shared it with my last interview um, with Richard Van, who's a LinkedIn expert himself. And he agreed that our video views have gone down because LinkedIn prefers to give us more vanity metrics on our text and image posts. And I thought, wow, what a great thought leadership that was from you. And it just makes so much sense. And have you also experienced the same sort of video view drop over the years? And are are you still continuing to? Because I see your video views being very high up there Mm. in comparison to all of us who've had huge deterioration over here. Mm.
1: As of recently, I've seen, uh, like maybe in the last two weeks, I've seen a uh, small decline in it. But these are normal fluctuations within the platform is what I figured out. Um, But the funny thing is that, like, I don't, track views. So, um, it's not, uh, even if there were changes, it's not something that I notice very frequently. I look at engagement. I look at, um, who's commenting, how often they're doing it, like why it's happening. I look at the engagement within the first 60 seconds of when I post something, I have different ways than other people to look at what I quantify as success. Um, and on the video view side, like it's, it's not complicated, right? If they, LinkedIn does not count. If you scroll by a video and watch zero seconds of it, it doesn't count it as a video view, but it would count as an impression for a text post. And so that happens over and over. The second piece of it, that's really interesting is that LinkedIn serves an ad about every four to five posts. If you, so if you scroll through there, and if there are more posts that you can scroll by faster, they serve more ads. And so there, so it's just an interesting thing. It's just, when you put it together, it's interesting to see why are decisions made in this way to drive these types of outcomes, because the, if somebody spends nine minutes watching my video, they probably could have made like 17 bucks on ads by then on the one person. Right. So the, it's an interesting part. I have no data to support this. It's just literally my thinking, having a pretty good understanding of social networks. And I think that's, part of the rationale as to why the algorithm prioritizes one over the other. And it's just crazy to think about, look at every other platform and why it's successful, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, all video, all video based and prioritize video, because mm-hmm. that is what people want to consume. But LinkedIn doesn't know how to cons- to deliver ads inside of videos yet. So they have, they, the algorithm needs to change in order to, to for them to be able to make the revenue in that way. Um, so I would, I, I, I hope this feedback to them, um, cause I, there are, I think there are a few people that understand the dynamics of the LinkedIn platform better than me right now. I went into it in 2019 saying, I'm going to understand this better than anybody else. Um, and as I've continued to understand it, you can see why decisions are made, why certain things happen. And I just hope it's, um, I, I think the platform is in a, uh, a vulnerable position right now. And I hope they take some of the advice
0: thank you so much chris it's been amazing chat with you um and you know keep doing what you're doing we love it we love your authentic view thought leadership and i know that you know you really do challenge a lot of my thinking at times and i love that that you come from a totally different angle so thanks so much and i look forward to connecting again soon
1: yeah thank you and by the way for those of you that don't know melanie woke up at i think 3 30 in the morning in bali to do this interview and so i just want to say thank you this was awesome uh appreciate the dedication i hope you enjoy the rest of your trip
0: i will chris thank you so honored for that and i look forward to connecting again you're listening to innovative minds tune in every thursday and spark your mind